Well, thank you very much for having us here uh, this morning. Um, I think uh, w we'd like to come because uh, we'd like to tell you about this wonderful opportunity that we have, the 16th International Congress of Medieval Canon Law, which will be held at St. Louis University uh, this summer, July 19th through 25th. And we think it's of interest not just to St. Louis University and to local uh, schools, but also to the legal community here in St. Louis and especially because of all the Catholic connections in it, especially to those with an interest in the Catholic tradition. Um, so I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it um, and, and what it might be, and hopefully some of you might be able to come. And then my colleague, Atria, will, will tell you a little bit about medieval canon law and how it has impacted uh, modern legal structures and jurisprudence. So. Um, so this International Congress of Medieval Canon Law is really the premier <coughs> academic conference in the field of medieval canon law. Uh, it is uh, uh, something that happens every four years, like the Olympics. And uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, it, it, it's in a different city every time. It alternates sides of the Atlantic. Um, so we were very, very fortunate to get it here at St. Louis University for this the 16th time. Um, the 16th Congress. Uh, it draws about 200, maybe even as many as 250 uh, scholars and other participants from all across the world. I think we've, we've calculated that uh, we've seen people from five different continents and uh, dozens of countries who do come to this. So it's quite an international event. Um, the participants are not just medievalists like myself or, or canonists per se, but it, it goes broader than that. There are a number of people in related fields who come to this, uh, such as uh, those uh, who study modern jurisprudence and legal norms and the history of that, also Roman law, uh, Justinian's corpus, uh, as well as ecclesiastical history and the history of the papacy, which is another area of mine, uh, also uh, the history of theology and biblical exegesis and the study of manuscripts, as well as just more in general, the history of culture and society and ideas. As you can imagine, as you know, the law touches on so many different uh, areas. And so very many people come from all over to participate. It's an entire week long Congress, which is uh, very unusual for an academic conference. It's, it's a bit of a workout. And anyone who's in this area, such as Atria and myself, for us, it's, it's a must-attend event. Every four years, you go to it. Junior scholars, senior scholars, and many other people attend. Um, the overseeing academic organization is called ICMAC, that is the, uh, the Juris Canonici Medii Avi Consociatio, or the International Society of Medieval Canon Law. And when we, at the last Congress in Paris, at the 15th Congress, uh, Atria and I gave a presentation to lure them to St. Louis University. And they were actually very excited by it because, uh, as you might be aware, St. Louis U it has grown quite, quite a lot in, in prominence in terms of medieval studies. Um, and the fact that we have myself, Atria, and one other scholar, Susan Langel, all in the medieval canon law, it's unusual to have three people in one university. Uh, so they were very excited to come. St. Louis University itself was excited to come. We made a number of pitches uh, to different parts of the university, and uh, they were ecstatic. Uh, the, everyone from the office of the provost 
and the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, all the way down to uh, the Catholic Studies program, which is run by Father David McConey, whom you might know, uh, and, and individual departments, theology, history, uh, philosophy, and the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. All of these uh, have, have signed on to sponsor and help support it. Uh, and so we're very excited to have so much backing. Um, you might be interested to know that the very first Congress was in 1958 at the University of Louvain in, in Belgium. And it's been going strong in countries like France, Canada, Spain, uh, England, Hungary, uh, Italy. It's been all over, a number of cities in the United States as well. And so we're part of a long tradition. We're very excited about it. So uh, AP and I have been, as you can imagine, planning for the last few years, actually, for this Congress. and. Uh, we have uh, a tentative program lined up now. Um, it is a week long. Uh, we begin with an opening mass on Sunday, July 19th. And unfortunately, Archbishop Carlson isn't in town to celebrate it. But we have a pretty good uh, substitute. Uh, Cardinal Peter Erdo, who is the Archbishop of Estergom, Budapest, and the primate of Hungary, uh, will be coming not only to attend the Congress. He himself is a scholar of medieval canon law. And not only will he be attending the Congress, uh, but also giving one of the plenary addresses and presiding at the opening mass. I, I believe that con celebrating at the opening mass will be Bishop uh, Thomas Paprocki from Springfield, another canon law person. Um, so uh, we have that big mass. We're going to have that in College Church on SLU's campus. By tradition, it is in Latin, uh, Novus Ordo, because the simple reason that it's the only language all of the participants have in common. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's like the Middle Ages in a way. Um, and so uh, that is how the Congress starts off. We have a number of days of sessions and plenary addresses, a total of seven plenary addresses. Um, the day I would like to tell you specifically about, especially about, is uh, the... Um, the Wednesday, July the uh, 22nd, uh, which is a day that we're going, it's going to take place at the law school specifically. It's a day when we're trying to get people from the legal community especially to attend. It will be uh, uh, advertised as a continuing legal education event. And the dean of the school of law, Bill Johnson, has been uh, very happy to have us there. Um, he wants to show off the law school, which is a very beautiful building. Uh, and has some wonderful space for us, uh, but also to show uh, an international group of scholars what SLU, SLU's law school has to offer. Uh, the theme of that day, every day has a different theme. Um, the theme of that day is going to be, going to be the influence of the jus commune. Uh, if you don't know the jus commune, European common law, which uh, Atria will speak more about. The influence of the jus commune on the Western legal tradition and international law. Um, we're hoping to get a lot of interested law students and legal scholars and, and even just practicing lawyers from all over the area to come to that. Um, to give you a little taste of what that day might hold, um, after the dean welcomes us, we're going to have one plenary address by Professor Ken Pennington from Catholic University of America. Um, and after that, we're going to have a panel discussion moderated by Atria. Uh, some of the topics on that panel discussion, as you can see in the handout, I think will be of interest to many of you. Um, things like 
due process and the maxim innocent until proven guilty. Um, Romano canonical procedure and modern procedure. Um, medieval canon law and today's global surveillance architecture. The influence of canon law on international law. And the use commune justice and the common good, a legacy for the Western legal tradition. We have a number of uh, uh, interesting and um, well-known, well-established scholars uh, from a number of countries who will participate in that panel. After a lunch, we will have a second uh, plenary address, this time by Professor Bruce Brasington of, the, of West Texas A&M University. <laughs> and then later in the afternoon, we will have some concurrent sessions on a number of different topics. And we'll close off the day with a happy hour and an interactive exhibit that's going to be offered by the SLU Law Library. I think they're going to pull out a number of their rare legal books and show them off and uh, over the happy hour. Um, so uh, even if you're not able to come to the entire week-long Congress, we hope that perhaps you will be able uh, to come for that day. I think it will be very rewarding. So that is a taste of what the Congress is, what it's about, uh, why it might be interesting to you. I would also like, if you will bear with me, I would like to ask you uh, or invite you uh, to help support the Congress. Uh, as you can imagine, a week-long uh, conference like this is quite expensive. And I think that the School of Law would particularly be interested in any kind of help that you might be able or willing to offer uh, in terms of supporting, for example, the lunch that we have on the law school day or that happy hour during the law school exhibit. Um, Atria and I are working with a couple of people in development at SLU, one with arts and sciences, the other with the law school. And we would be extremely happy to um, follow up with them if you'd like us, uh, if you think you, that you can offer any help with that. We can put you in contact with them. Um, so that is, uh, in a nutshell, what the Congress is all about. Uh, and uh, is there anything I'm forgetting, Atria? I think. Uh, do you have any questions before I turn it over to Atria? So you talked about what's going to happen this day. What are the other Want days? Want to hear the other days? Yeah, we have a day that. Um, OK, the question was, uh, what, what do the other days of the Congress entail? Um, so uh, on some of the other days, we have. Uh, we try to have an overarching theme for the day. Um, uh, some of those themes are canon law, theology, and pastoral care. Um, yeah, yeah. That one is good. Another one is texts and jurisprudence. So a lot of the people in my field are very much into the transmission of texts because, as you might know, medieval canon law was a, a system based on precedent. It was just a compilation of papal letters and conciliar canons that had been handed down for centuries. So how these canons were transmitted and collected, believe it or not, it was, uh, maybe I don't want to give away too much for Atria, but it was a, a private initiative until the 13th century. Uh, individual scholars would just collect papal letters and conciliar canons. So the study of texts is very important. Another day is going to be on medieval canon law and local ecclesiastical history, how it affects individual churches in different places. Um, those are some of the themes. Um, the Thursday, <laughs> you might enjoy knowing this, the Thursday 
is dedicated as an excursion day. This is a long tradition in the Congress's history where we stop in the middle of the week and we go off and do something fun. And a, there's going to be a lot of Europeans there. And they, we thought they would want to know about small town America and some Americana. And so we're going to take them to Springfield, Illinois. And we're going to show them the Lincoln Museum, which is a fantastic museum. And uh, the old state capitol, the Lincoln House, let them have lunch in, in a small town. Then we're going to bring them back to St. Louis and put them on a riverboat for a dinner cruise on the Mississippi, which already we understand a number of the Europeans are, are very excited about. So we, we hope the river isn't too high this summer. <laughs> that would be a kind of a disaster. Um, and then uh, on Saturday, when we close off, after a few more sessions during the day, um, there is a final reception and a closing banquet. And uh, this is kind of a formal banquet. And a wonderful tradition, I think, that we have is called the Toast of the Nations. So a representative of each country or language group will get up and offer a toast and probably thank the organizers and um, look forward to the next Congress. It will probably be announced at that time where the next Congress will be. And there, it's a, there's a lot of jollity and you know, um, uh, good time at that. And then, and then people leave usually the next day on Sunday. So yeah. Any other questions? OK, well, thanks for your attention. Let me hand it over to Atria. Thank you for having us here. Um, as Steve mentioned, one of the uh, one of the days is devoted to text and jurisprudence. So I could come up here and give you a five-minute history of medieval canon law and talk about all the various individuals and texts, but that probably would be really boring. So <laughs> uh, I thought instead I'd, I'd hit a couple um, key themes just to give you a, a sense. If you if you never had the the benefit of a legal history class at, at law school or um, back in your undergrad days, if you if you didn't have any exposure to medieval canon law, it's not exactly exactly a hot topic in American universities. Um, but to give, I want to give you a sense of what, from my perspective, what canon law is is about, and and then give you a taste of sort of the, the types of themes that might be addressed at the day at the at the law school. Um, and I'll just sort of um, reiterate what's on that, that sheet. It is uh, being, the, the law school is organizing it as a continuing legal education event. So not quite sure yet how many credits are available and I don't know how the system works, but they understand that down at the law school. So, um, so if you want to come to that day, um, please email us and uh, we'll register your attendance and, and the people down there will make sure you get CLE credit for it. Um, so for, for me, as I think about the history of medieval canon law, as, as Steve mentioned, um, there's a lot coming out of the, the early history of the church with church councils, and then the development of uh, local Episcopal government, but also then um, the papacy. And one thing that happens is uh, that this is modeled on actually a Roman imperial practice where provincial governors would have questions and problems in their local regions and send a question to the Roman emperor and the emperor would send a response called a rescript. Um, and early, uh, so papal letters that we refer to as papal decretals actually are modeled on that. And so, yeah, as 
time went on, these conciliar canons, papal decretals, other kind of local laws and decisions um, are kind of gathered together and you start to build up a body, a corpus of, of law. Um, but as far as like, thinking more at the, the structural level of what's going on there over you know, a millennium or, or more, uh, I think the history of medieval canon law is the story about, um, on one level, it's the story of how the church came to organize and structure itself. Okay, so what are the different offices? Um, what, what powers do they have? What are the sort of jurisdictional boundaries? Um, what's the relationship of people in one office to people in another <coughs> office? Uh, how, what are the qualifications if you uh, want to become a priest, okay? Um, and, and these issues actually have quite a lot of impact and, and importance because it determines who the hierarchy is across Europe um, and, and in a really the first kind of transnational legal and administrative system. Uh, then I think medieval canon law is also the story of how the church exercised pastoral care and attempted to render justice to its members. Okay, so this is a field where I work a lot in. Um, understanding canon law, uh, this is, there, there was no real sort of, canon law was an arm, a branch of the church as it was operating as a, and as priests and bishops viewed their role as shepherds of the people in their flocks. It's an element of pastoral care because you're dealing with people who, um, you're dealing with communities of people and then people do wrong things and offend one another and commit what we would think of as crimes, but of course within Christianity those are also sins. And so you are aiming to develop, uh, you're, you're developing a system whereby people can be reconciled within the community to other members within the community, but also ultimately, of course, the goal is the salvation of souls and reconciliation to God. Um, so canon law, um, you know, even the jokes we make among ourselves gets a bad rap for, you know, and you guys know good lawyer jokes, but, um, you know, everybody <laughs> is uh, focused on the, the details, particularities of the law, and sometimes maybe the, the human element, the people get lost in the midst of it. And, and canon law, you can really see through the development of medieval canon law, this, this emphasis and this sort of underlying concern for the well-being of the soul of the people that are being, that fall under um, canon law. And so it's, it's a way of sort of uh, governing these communities. It's a way of bringing reconciliation within the community when there's wrongdoing. It's a way of uh, sort of ministering to, to people and bringing them back into a relationship with, um, with God and church. It's also, um, the history of medieval canon law is also the story of how the church both adapted pre-existing legal norms and advanced a distinctively Christian jurisprudence. Um, and so, yeah, Roman law is part of this story, okay? So obviously coming out of the Roman Empire, there's a fairly advanced legal system. And then in the West, all of that kind of starts to collapse and fall apart. And who's there kind of holding society together and taking care of stuff? It's a local church hierarchy. Um, the, the church is the, is the entity that maintains some level of structure and organization. 
Um, so they are happy to use and draw bits when, um, when useful from, uh, from Roman law codes and then also from Germanic law codes. And these German uh, tribal leaders, then kings, are attempting to model their law codes on the Roman emperor. Everybody wants to be like the Roman emperor, right? Um, so so they're, they're drawing on that material. But at the same time, because of this pastoral care dimension, there's deep theological roots. And, and, and this is where we start to get into like, really understanding how medieval canon law is influential because some of the things that we take for granted, like the right to a defense um, the, or the, the concept of double jeopardy and not trying somebody twice, these are actually rooted in biblical exegesis and understanding of things that are going on in scripture. So there's a, uh, my guy is Gratian in the 12th century, and there's a, a, a commentator on Gratian named Palkapalia. It's a great name. Um, Palkapalia says, hey, look at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, okay? Uh, God just didn't come in and render a judgment right away. He came in and he asked questions, okay? He made an investigation, all right? Uh, where are you, all right? And, and what happened? And so... So the, the idea of a, um, even from an omniscient God who knows everything, yeah. right, that he still comes in and so it's sort of God is establishing the precedent for that, that there needs to be an inquiry, an investigation, people need to be able to respond to charges brought against them. Okay, another example is, yeah, there's, a, there's an old Latin translation of uh, Nahum 1 verse 9. And it basically says in that Latin translation, God, God will not render um, a judgment twice. <coughs> this is what the concept, the, the idea of double jeopardy comes out of, this biblical exegesis on that verse. Again, it's modeled on God's justice. God doesn't punish us twice for our sins. So therefore, so also, we should not in our justice system. Um, so those are there are two examples. So in the midst of all of this, then, um, uh, you know, basically the church develops <coughs> this first kind of international system of law that crosses political and geographic boundaries, um, and, it, and it really is influential on the development <coughs> of the legal tradition in the West. So uh, to close, just to give you a sense of one particular area of that, um, I thought. Just uh, short snippets. Um, I was asked to contribute to a, um, a book that Bloomsbury Academic is going to be putting out very soon. It's a multi-volume cultural history of democracy. Um, and they asked me to write the chapter on liberty and the rule of law in that uh, volume on the medieval period. And it says, well, it's, it, so why liberty and the rule of law? They asked someone like me to write that because medieval canon law and the use community, the, the common legal system in Europe, the people, the, the jurists of that system were very influential in developing those types of ideas. Um, so I don't want to go too long here. Maybe five minutes, is that okay? Okay. Um, all right. So I'll read you my introduction to that essay and then sort of a, a closing bit, again, just to give you a sense of uh, one area, a very important one, of the impact of legal thinking from the medieval period on, on the development of sort of Western norms that uh, have an impact not only on our legal system, but even also our political um, system. Okay, so uh, the Apostle James wrote about the perfect law 
law of liberty, that's James 1 verse 25, that leads to blessedness. Right? The Apostle Paul wrote, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's 2 Corinthians 3.17. And for freedom, Christ has set us free. That's Galatians 5.1. That freedom meant that Christians were not slaves, but rather children and heirs of God, not children of a slave woman personified in Hagar of the Old Testament, but children of the promise and of a free woman personified in Abraham's wife, Sarah. More than a millennium later, you all have seen this movie, The Scots Rebelled Against the English King, right? The movie Braveheart, uh, made in 1995, Mel Gibson, made the rebellion of the early 14th century of one of its heroes, William Wallace, famous to contemporary audiences. The character rallied his peers with the statement, they may take away our lives, but they'll never take away our Freedom, okay. So, and as he was being publicly disemboweled, the only word that came forth from his lips was a ringing freedom, right? The film's emphasis on freedom derives from actual historical documents, including the Scots Declaration of Arbroath in, from the year 1320, which spoke of, and this is a quotation from that declaration, liberty, which no good man loses but with his life. Now, does the apostolic freedom James and Paul's talking about have anything to do with William Wallace's? Some theologians would say no, some would say yes, but one of Wallace's near contemporaries might have thought so. A guy named Jean Lemoine, or Johannes Monachus in his Latin name, uh, who died in the year 1313, was a canonist who worked in the Pope's service. Though often portrayed as an extreme papalist, he did not endorse a despotic Pope who ruled the church like a master over slaves. Drawing on Aristotle's politics, he identified two types of princely regimes, one despotic and one of legitimate polity. The first, the despotic one, is that of a master over a slave who does not have the right to resist. The right to resist, okay? And the second is a princely regime of free individuals who have the right to resist in certain circumstances. For Johannes, that was the kind of princely regime the church constituted, and in support he cited Galatians 4.31, for we are not sons of the slave woman, but of the free one by which liberty Christ freed us. For Johannes Monachus, as well as for William Wallace, being free meant having the right to resist tyrannical authority. For Wallace, his exercising of his right to resist was met with the full force of the law. Edward I's government tried and convicted him of treason, for which the lawful punishment was death. For Johannes, the idea of the right to resist was central to non-servile status, and Pauline freedom spoke to Aristotle's notion of proper government and was associated with individual rights. As I go on through the, the, the chapter, I try to disentangle the complexities of the notions of freedom in relationship to law in the medieval period. At the end of that essay, then I come a little bit, a short section on the notion of rights, okay? So the rights of individuals to be protected by the rule of law. And the common misconception, the middle, medieval period is the dark ages and nobody had any rights whatsoever and you've just got a bunch of arbitrary kings running around doing whatever they wanted. In fact, it's not really the case, and even if in practice that was sometimes the case, that was certainly not the theory. Um, that was not the ideal. So the medieval jurists developed quite sophisticated notions of rights. 
Although the term use, um, which is the root of our term even justice, okay, what is right, um, in the medieval period often referred to the objective right order in the world, that which is right, and sometimes it was used as almost equivalent to lex, the Latin word for just like a, a statute, a law. Um, Canonists also spoke of this word use or right in terms of an individual faculty or power, such as that belonging to the poor, who had a right to provisions or to infidels or for non-Christians, who by uh, natural law had a natural right to property. So even infidels have a natural right to property. The civilian jurist, a guy named Guido of Suzara, asked if the, the prince of an Italian town who swears to uphold the statutes of the city should abide by one, a statute ordering the occupation of someone's home or other property without cause. The jurist said the statute was not valid. Since not even the prince can remove my property or my right, such as to bring suit without just cause. And indeed, private individuals can resist the officials of the prince if they attempt to take away my property against the law. Jurists also maintain the right of individuals to form associations and then collectively to govern themselves. They thus supported guild activity in the medieval period. Pope Innocent IV, who uh, died in 1254 and before he became Pope was quite an established jurist, um, affirmed that all their members or a greater part, majority, right, majority votes, or a greater part if they wish, can set up a judge for themselves and exercise the other rights of an association. Jurists also asserted the individual freedom of craftsmen to join a guild or not, but if they chose to do so, they would be part of this collegium or universitas, this guild association that had the power to make statues on matters over which they have jurisdiction and which relate to their own members. Um, so again, sort of our concept of like the freedom of association um, and then what that means for individual separate uh, independent entities and their rights to, to govern themselves internally. So thus, uh, princes thus could not interfere in the operations of guilds or other communal associations, nor could princes violate certain rights such as those of property or of defense in court that were rooted in higher laws. So um, that's all I have for you today. Uh, just again, those types of themes are what we tried to organize and put more on this Wednesday, July 22 day. Um, and again, uh, Father Schoenig and I would be happy if, if you're interested in coming, let us know if you're interested in advertising this in your law firm um, to others who might be interested. Um, and if you're interested in having you personally or your law firm sort of be on some level a, a sponsor and be advertised that day down at the law school as well, let us know and we can put you in contact with the right people at, at SLU and their development office. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, questions? You, you use the term use commune. Yes. Which to it's us, a confusing term. Which for us is common law, which comes out of England, but this Different. isn't. Yeah, this, can you? Yes, okay. Repeat 
question. Yes. So what is the distinction between common law as we think of in the English legal system with a heavy impact <coughs> on the American legal system and this Latin term, use commune. This is why scholars will say use commune and to keep it in the Latin, because if we give a, just a flat out English translation, then there's even more confusion, right? So, so use commune, when we use that term, we're talking about, um, there's a big century here is the 12th century. So as uh, Christian jurisprudence developed and canon law developed into its own really distinctive legal system with advanced jurisprudence and court systems and, and all of that, at the same time there is a revival of study of Roman law. Um, and so you have a rediscovery and a restudy of, uh, of Justinian's um, digest, code, institutes, all of this stuff. So, People who studied canon law also studied on some level the civil law, the Roman law, and vice versa. So there's a lot of uh, cross influences. And so the, the norms, the terms, the, the jurisprudence, um, this is really important in terms of procedure, even that we use this term Romano-canonical <coughs> procedure. So you have norms coming out of Roman law that the canonists adopt um, within the church and develop in their own way for proper modes of due process and procedure in church courts. So this whole system where it is a common law in the sense that it spreads throughout Europe and it's a mixture from like a couple different legal traditions, secular and ecclesiastical, um, but because it, ha it had impact throughout uh, Latin Christendom, we refer to that that was for them, they would use the term the use commune. So even I was reading the other day or something, it's, it's a principle of the use commune, that women, blah, 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 okay? And so they would use that term, that this is sort of part of the established legal system within Europe. In England, there is some influence from that. That's kind of a hotly debated topic about how much in England, and England is always a bit distinctive in its development. But, so, but then, yeah, if we use the English term common law, then we're referring to the, the sort of the distinctive legal system that emerged and developed in, in England. Um, yeah. Yes? Just curious, what influence the Holy Father had in medieval times on the courts and their decisions? Yes. To, you know, we have the U.S. Supreme Court, <coughs> I guess the nominated members of that court, but other than that, yes. you know, the veto power. Uh -huh, I'm curious, uh -huh. it's church law and the Supreme Good. Court. Good, yeah. So it's, um, it's kind of, in, oh, sorry, repeat the question. Um, so what, what uh, influence does the Holy Father have in, in medieval canon law? So there's certainly from the early church, there are papal decretal letters. Um, what's kind of interesting is the influence of that is more from local initiative of people who are gathering these things together. The, the Pope did not legislate until, I would even say the 13th century. So, um, but he's still very influential. So when people have questions, depending on the region and the time, it varies somewhat, but they will look to the Pope as the one to whom they bring, they, they're consulting the Pope. And then the Pope writes an immediate response to their questions on a particular case. And so you really have the development of a body of case law, right? And, and so, and papal letters are a huge part of that. Um, then in the 13th century, well, beginning in the 12th century, that starts happening a lot more. 
there's a lot of changes in society. It's a very dynamic period, so there's a lot of new legal issues that come up. And so people are constantly, you, you, now you have the development of the papal curia because the pope cannot handle the volume of requests coming to him. So now the papal curia starts to be filled with a lot more like canon law specialists. Um, and, and so you have a lot more of these decretal letters being sent out and people are gathering them up as soon as they receive them. So you have local collections. Then it's, it's in the early 13th century that the Pope says, I think maybe I should take charge of what's kind of an official collection or not. And, and then he commissions work to be done, modeled on Justinian. Um, and this is where you get what's called the, the Liber Extra. Um, and this is one of the key books within the, the body of canon law up until 1918 when the new code of canon law went into effect. Yes? Did the notion of trial by ordeal have a Root oh. in canon law? The, yes, the, the trial by ordeal. Does that have a root in canon law? Um, no. As far as um, scholars can tell, this also had no Roman precedence. Um, this seems to be something that emerged in uh, sort of these, these early um, uh, Western medieval kingdoms that come out of the Germanic tribes. They've converted to Christianity. Um, there were always critics of it, so yes, people used it, but it was kind of in a, a sort of a proof of last resort. When there was no other evidence, then, um, then okay, then we'll do the trial by ordeal and either put boiling water on somebody, and if they don't burn, that means they're innocent, right? But it was not something, it was not widely used. Again, this was kind of of last resort if there was no other clear indication of guilt or innocence. And that already is going out of favor in the 12th century. Um, and then it is specifically outlawed, or at least uh, priests, clerics, are not allowed to participate in ordeals um, uh, officially by canon law beginning in the early 13th century. And, and a lot of that is the influence of these norms of Romano-canonical procedure saying this is just not a proper way of investigating a crime and determining guilt or innocence. Yeah. Good. Yes. You talked in your paper, you were talking about the understanding of freedom. And you know, if you read the saints, freedom really is in submission to the rule of God. Yes, yes. And I, I'm just kind of, and I think American society, we have this, you know, people talk about freedom, but it's really licensed to do yes, whatever you want. Yes, exactly. And I, I was wondering how, how did, that influence, you know, the, the idea of freedom in a Christian sense, how did that influence the development of canon law? Yeah, good. So the question is about freedom and in uh, contemporary society, it really is just sort of this notion of just the license to do whatever you right. want. And, um, and the, the Christian notion of freedom is very much not that. And I, I do get into that into the chap in the chapter because really for them, freedom was the freedom to be able to live in accord with the right order of the world, to sort of, <laughs> the, I don't know, army model be all that you can be. Um, freedom was like the, to be not constrained by sin and subservience to the passions and um, to be sort of the, to sort of to fulfill the purposes that God would have for you 
and freedoms were always balanced with corresponding sort of obligations and duties and moral responsibility. It was, there was always a balance there. So, um, so when they talk about freedoms and, and, and libertas, and, and Magna Carta is not the only, it's like one of many, many charters where you can see this type of thing, you have uh, communal freedoms within different towns or political entities, and as a member of the community, you have those freedoms. But it's never seen, again, as just, it's, it's freedom from oppression. It's freedom to, on one level, determine your own sort of fate and destiny. But at the same time, all of that is within the context of a Christian moral framework. It's not, it's not a freedom just to go off and do whatever you want, or to cause anarchy, or, um, or to live a life of sin, certainly. So, so yeah, it, it's complex. I think the, the nuances of that have been lost over time in, in our Western society. Yeah. Then you become a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You're saying that nuances are lost in American political dialogue? I find that so surprising. <laughs> Yeah. How does that creep in? Like that, to me, speaks mostly like Muslim. Yes. It is. Uh, predominantly, that's who they would have in mind. This comes from Latin. When you know Latin, everything in the world becomes clear. So, um, <laughs> so the, the Latin term is uh, infidelis, and that's the opposite of fidelis. So the people in the church are the fideles. They are the ones who are faithful. They are the faithful. So the non-faithful ones, the ones who aren't members of the church and faithful to the Christian God, are infideles. So that's the root of our term infidel, which of course today has very pejorative connotations. But at the time, yes, for the most part, they use that for, for Muslims. Um, because in the, the early 8th century, um, yeah, as, as Islam expanded, they were already in, in Spain by the year 711. And, and even in Northern Europe, there would have occasionally been um, uh, like commercial transactions and trade. Um, of course, there's also Jews in Europe at the time, but infidelis usually carries the connotations uh, for the most part of Muslims. Of course, for, for many years also, there's still a lot of other people who are not yet converted to Christianity in extreme northern parts of like Scandinavia, um, places like Latvia and, and Estonia. So it takes time for them to to convert to Christianity officially, but yeah. Thank you. Okay. Let me see.